Okay, um, I believe this is for um, the um, On the point of silence and memory, how can one not relieve the pain of losing a loved one, specifically to suicide, in such a deep way while doing your best to see the good that God has given you in your life despite the traumatic loss of that? God bless the, um, the person who has to endure that kind of memory, of course. Um, of course, we can't simply wipe away our memories, but we can take the, the energy that comes to us, or the emotional energy that comes to us from our memories and pray with it, right? So um, you heard me quote throughout the weekend, Father Zachariah Zacharu, who's a contemporary um, elder and um, really wonderful writer on what I would call ascetical theology or the spiritual life. And he always speaks about this idea of converting psychological energy, emotional energy to spiritual energy. Mm. So we take whatever, let's say, I'm, something hurts me, the memory of a, a loved one who, who, you know, who reposed, especially in some tragic situation like that. Um, or we take you know, the wound that comes from somebody who betrays me, right? Or somebody who is unkind to me. Right? We take these wounds that come and they create a, a sort of emotional, psychological response, right? And so we become sad, we become angry, we become frustrated, whatever, whatever that emotion might be. Rather than just leaving it, he says, at the psychological level, you convert it to prayer and it becomes spiritual energy. So it's very simple. Instead of, you know, uh, somebody who comes and he says a harsh word to me, instead of me saying, oh, how ungrateful this person is. I've been so kind to him and all he has done is, 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 is return my goodness with, with, uh, with um, uh, you know, wronging me and so on. Instead of just talking to myself with, with that, with that uh, emotion, I immediately say, Lord, you see, you see that my heart is broken. You see, Lord, that I have this, this wound. You come, Lord, fill my heart with your peace, with your presence. Lord, you can grant me the grace to love this person, to forgive this. Right? I begin a dialogue, whatever that dialogue is. I begin to speak to the Lord with the pain that's in my heart, and it becomes prayer. Right? So I think the, the, the one thing that we can do, especially with a memory that is very intense like that, is to just pray with it. How do we revive ourselves when we have already become vulnerable, not only to be left dependent? We felt Repeat the question for me. Um, how do we revive ourselves when we have already become vulnerable with God only to be felt abandoned? Only to be felt abandoned? Mm. I think the younger group got used to me in being a little bit blunt and being very direct and very unsympathetic. So for those of you who I didn't have the blessing of being be with, I'm nothing like Abuna Krolos. <laughs> Abuna Krolos is really loving, okay? Like, So let's, let's talk about feeling abandoned for just a second. You clearly believe the lie. Because if you believe in a God who is willing to abandon you, then this is a problem. We clearly don't believe in the same God. Uh, we, we literally say, we literally say in the liturgy, you have not abandoned us to the end. So when we feel abandoned, we are per currently in a temptation to believe that our feelings supersede what we know to be true about God. And in those moments of temptation, we have to knock ourselves out of this. Habibi, when we completely surrender ourselves to our feelings in the spiritual life, this becomes a very, very slippery slope. So I want to encourage you. It is perfectly okay for you to feel or to suggest that somehow in that current state, I am, there is something inside me that is incapable of recognizing God's presence. That in those moments, His silence is something that gets to me, that I don't know how to deal with His silence. But there's a very big difference between God being silent and God being absent. The Lord is never absent. The Lord never, ever, ever abandons us. So when the person is asking the question of, I was once vulnerable and God abandoned me, I appreciate the fact that you attempted to be vulnerable with God. But I want to encourage you to recognize that the life of the spiritual struggle, that deepening of the relationship, 
requires for us to not only attempt to be vulnerable, but to remain in that state of vulnerability. If you've ever read the life and the journals and the writings of Mother Teresa, you see for yourself how it is that this woman who has served in some of the worst circumstances, where she has seen human poverty at a level that many of us would not be able to deal with. She has seen human suffering in a way that truly can drive anyone mad. And she served faithfully for decades on end. And for over half of, the, half of that time, she spoke to her spiritual counselor about how it is that she really did feel like there was a darkness. That God's silence was something that would drive her almost to the point of madness, but she remained faithful in knowing that even this was an expression of his love. Even this was an expression of him saying, I will be with you, but I want you to accept even this from me. So if you're trying to navigate this difficulty of vulnerability with God and not knowing what to do with his silence, and you let your feelings, or you fall into the trap that many of us, including myself, fall into, of letting our feelings dictate the truth of who God is. If you're doing this on your own, you're setting yourself up to fail. This is where your spiritual counselor comes in. This is where you being supported by a person who knows you, who loves you, who prays with you and prays for you, is of extreme importance. So I encourage you, do not be too quick to pull the plug and suggest, you know, أَنَا هَتْئِمِسْ وَهَزْعَلْ مَلْقَبْنَا I'm going to tell God, Why? Because I came to you and you didn't answer me. We can't deal with God in that way. So I urge you, please, please, set aside those feelings and remind yourself, remind yourself of who it is that you're dealing with. The same God who offered His only begotten Son. The incarnate Word who on the cross, while being crucified by His Beloved, is capable of saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The one who says, be of good cheer, it is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom. The one who says, I will never forsake you nor abandon you. This is the one that you are in relationship with. He cannot be both the person that you feel abandoned you, and at the same time be the faithful shepherd that we know that he is. Set aside the feelings. Don't give in to the temptation and go back to him. Go back to him and trust that his love is much greater than the feelings that you have right now. How can we pull in or inspire members of our family that may not be as close to church? Anyone else? I think whether it's somebody from our family or anybody else, the best way, of course, that we inspire somebody is through our life. Right? I mean. Sometimes words just, as we say, fall on deaf ears, and we, um, you know, we, parents sometimes fall into this mistake where they're just constantly, you know, um, harboring on their, uh, their their children to do, you know, to go to church, to say their prayers, to read their Bible, but they don't see the example lived in, in the home, you know. And so Father Tedros Malati he always talks about how important it is, for example, the home to be a place of joy. Hmm. If the if the kids don't see I know the question wasn't about kids specifically, but if the kids don't see the parents living in harmony and enjoy loving each other, sacrificing for each other, praying, reading the scriptures, attending church, it doesn't matter how many times they talk about God, how many times they talk about the church, the kids will, will be very quick to pick up on the fact of that, that you say one thing, but you do another thing, which means your faith isn't real. It doesn't actually incarnate into your life. So... The best thing we can always do is just try to live the Christian life and to inspire people. And when God gives us an inspiration to give a word, we can give a word. When we feel we can be of help to somebody, we try to help them. We try to speak a word to them to encourage them. You know, and it depends on the familiarity we have. If we're very close to a sibling or to um, you know, a cousin or somebody, you know, we, can, we can be a little bit more direct. We can be a little bit more, we can warn them. We can you know, tell them, hey, you're, you're, you're going down a dangerous path. But if, if it's somebody we don't have that kind of relationship with, then I think the best thing we do is we, insp we inspire by our own life. We pray for them. We can put their name on the altar. We can, of course, pray for them in our personal prayers. And I think this is the, the, the way I would recommend. I don't know mm -hmm. if we'll... How can we get over the memory of someone doing evil and treat them with love, although you have fear of being harmed again? My father of confession used to always um, 
used to always encourage me when I was younger, when I would go to him and tell him I'm having difficulty forgiving someone. My father confession would always constantly remind me of how it is that if you are going to say the words and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, if you're going to say those words, then you have to forgive. He says, if you're not ready to forgive, no problem. But when you say, Our Father, be honest. And do not forgive me my trespasses, for I still cannot forgive those who trespass against me. So when you pray, Our Father, don't recite it the way anybody else would recite it, simply because that's the way you learned it. You tell me, if you're incapable of forgiving, then at the very least, be consistent to stand in front of God and tell Him, I am still incapable of forgiving, so do not forgive me my trespasses. Taban, this is terrifying. Who wants to stand before God and say something like this? So whether I like it or not, when my father confession would tell me something like this, simply out of recognizing that I am in need of forgiveness, then I have no choice but to be able to compel myself to recognize that there is still something worth forgiving here. But I want to be clear about something because I think sometimes, you guys ever hear the, the quote, when I forgive, I forget? Right? I don't know where they got that. I don't know where they got that because it's definitely not scriptural. It's not like a verse that was taken out of some, a book in the Bible. And this idea of like God forgetting, or when they say, by the way, when you confess to Abuna, Abuna forgets. I love it when they say this because like, you seriously want your priest to forget? Every time you go back, you want him to not remember everything you've done in this way, like he can't follow up with you? When you go to a psychiatrist, you want them to not have any notes from the last time and then you're restarting every single time? It makes no sense. The idea of forgetting has nothing to do with memory. It has nothing to do with as if somehow the history has been erased. You think when I get to heaven, if I have a conversation with Jesus and I tell him, Jesus, remember that one time where I messed up in 2008? You think Jesus is going to sit there and say, you messed up in 2008, Habibi? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what's going to happen. Forgetting here has nothing to do with memory being erased. The same way that we as human beings, it's difficult for us to forget the memory. The memory won't be erased from our hearts. But when you choose to forgive someone, what you're really doing is that you're refusing for there to be a boundary, or if you wish, not a boundary, because sometimes boundaries are extremely important, but you're refusing to let an obstacle be in the way between you and your brother or your sister. So for instance, if I'm looking at, is it your George? If I'm looking at George and I have sinned against George, what the devil wants to do is that every time George looks at me, instead of being able to see me for who I am, he places the obstacle right between me and George. So whenever George looks towards me, all he sees is the obstacle. He can see glimpses of me, but not as clearly as if the obstacle was removed. Forgiveness is when you choose to be able to place the obstacle out of you. When you're capable of looking at your brother and sister again and recognize them for who they are. So that you're no longer tempted to be able to look at them and only see the obstacle. But as long as you choose to not forgive, every time you look towards your brother or sister, all you see is the obstacle. You are not expected to forget as if it never happened. Forgive me, but let's say George, for instance, let's say I'm going out with my wife and I need somebody to take care of my kids. And I call George and I say, George, take care of my kids for me this evening. He says, absolutely, Abuna. Later on that evening, I get a call from the fire department. George fell asleep. The house burned down. Okay. I come running back, George is like, Abuna, I don't know what happened, I was so tired, I forgot something in the oven, next thing you know, poof, it's gone, Abuna, right? So I find it in my very loving and kind heart to forgive George. Khalas? I've forgiven George. And then we move and we establish a new life. The next time I need someone to babysit my children, you think the Christian response is for me to be an idiot and to call George to babysit my kids? No, of course not. <laughs> It is okay for me to learn that maybe this is not George's talent. Maybe this is not where George is great. It's not. It's, not <laughs> it's perfectly okay for me to not necessarily erase the data, but to be able to learn from it. And if I have to set a specific boundary between me and George, so as I don't repeat a certain level of pain, that's perfectly fine, but I beg you, please, have that conversation with someone who knows you and is guiding you spiritually before you go out there and just like setting boundaries with everybody and the next thing you know you're isolating yourself you're crossing people out of your book of life boundaries sometimes are taken a little bit out of context but please when we speak of forgiveness it's not a matter of you erasing the data it's about you making sure that there's no obstacle 
that's preventing you from being able to see your brother or your sister for who they are. How can the spiritual life be novel if it feels like I'm praying for the same things over and over again? How can spiritual life be novel? Like, like novel, with, I think like a new, not monotonous. I see. So, I think one of the things that we talked about in the first talk was this idea of newness. It has nothing to do with the exterior or external circumstances of our life or even the routines of our life, right? Um, when we think about the monastic life, we said, you know, it's, it's routine, right? They wake up at the same time, they eat at the same time, they go to the church at the same time, they go to their workstations, whatever it is that they're doing, and they repeat day after day after day. But what makes the difference between one monk and another or one nun and another is their interior life, right? So how we, uh, the attitudes, the dispositions that we work on on the, on the inside and the heart and, and the, the, life of the, the life of interior prayer is what's going to determine the, 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 the way I interpret my external realities and how I deal with the world and how I look at people. So um, we said, for example, Mother Teresa and St. Therese use the example of doing small things with great love, right? So it's about how we have more love, how we have more humility, more goodness in our heart, dealing with the very same circumstances that we face every day. So it's not about creating, again, novelty that we find newness in our spiritual life. It's about how we change from the inside with the very mundane things that we face every day. There's a, there's a good book um, called The Practice of the Presence of God. If some of you are familiar with it by Brother Lawrence. Is anybody here? I think some people nodding their heads. So Brother Lawrence was a cook in a monastery. He was, um, he was always in the kitchen. And, um, and he started to write letters of spiritual direction about how he, in his own life, discovered how he sort of experienced the presence of God in the, in the midst of the, 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 the pots and pans of the kitchen. Right? And, and so these very simple letters, it doesn't, the, when you find the book on Amazon, it's a very small book, you can find versions of it online. He's simply talking about how, again, we practice the presence of God in the very simple things that we do every day, the mundane things, the repeated things that we do. Right? And so... Uh, a mother who's home nursing her child and doing the laundry, you know, a, a dad who's washing the car on the driveway, taking the kids to, to basketball practice. All of these things can be spiritual things if we fill them with, with prayer, if we fill them with a sort of interior approach to transforming how we deal with people, how we look at the world, how we love people. Um, I mean, that's, that's the substance of the spiritual life. The substance of the spiritual life is the interior life. The kingdom of God is within. Uh, there's a, a Russian saint, his name is Saint Tikhon of Sadonsk. He said, essentially, that th that, that which doesn't exist on the inside doesn't exist at all. Right? So in the spiritual life, that which isn't from within doesn't exist. God only sees that which is within. The external stuff, if it doesn't have an interior reality, doesn't mean anything. I feel like for years I've been trying to be someone else, someone who is not me. How do I learn to accept who I am and not believe like I have to be like others? So let me share with you guys a real conversation that I had during my 40 days after I uh, was ordained as a priest. So I tell a lot of uh, our young people that before becoming a priest, I didn't know 99% of the stuff that like, God exposed me to after the priesthood. And prior to becoming a priest, like, I, actually, I, I really, really, really believe God ordained me to the priesthood in order to save my life. Because prior to that, like, if I, if I was choosing a new priest for my church, I would have never chosen me. Never. No way. I went to St. Mary's Bagamos in Egypt, and there I met a beautiful young monk who is, who, who is a great theologian, and not only in the way that he teaches and the knowledge that he has, but he's a theologian because he clearly sees God. He's a very beautiful monk. And St. Mary's Bagamos, the monastery there, because it's in Wedi Natrun, they can't really grow a lot of fruit, so they grow a lot of olives. Because the ground is very salty. And so we're walking through the plantations of the olive trees. 
And he's taking me for a walk, specifically because my older brother had called him, who, my older brother who was a priest, and he called him and told him, listen, like, I'm sending my younger brother, he just became a priest, he really doesn't know what he's doing, so can you just take care of him? Like, just ask about him and make sure he's all right, right? So father comes and picks me up, and we literally start going for a walk in the plantations. And as we're walking together, he goes, so Abuna, tell me, what do you want your priesthood to be like? I've given this zero thought. <laughs> so I'm like, um, well, and I start thinking through every possible Sunday school answer, realizing that Sunday school doesn't prepare you for this. <laughs> but because God has given me a gift that I don't deserve and like I can, I can talk well, like I can walk my, talk my way out of every conversation, I just start talking and hoping that something smart comes out. So I'm like, well, Abuna, I really would like for my priesthood to be edifying. And for, uh, for it to be a source of joy in people's lives and um, for it to uh, bring many to God. And I remember Abuna's walking next to me and he has his hands behind his back and he's looking at the ground, doesn't make any eye contact. He goes, mm, mm. And then he stops and he looks at me, he goes, I'm sorry Abuna, I must have not communicated properly. What I meant to ask was, what kind of priest do you want to be? I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's what I tried to answer. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, oh, of course, Abuna, sorry, I misunderstood. I'm like, well, I would really like for my priesthood to be, you edifying. know, edifying. <laughs> I promise, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say because my mind was immediately taking to me, think of priests that you like and start describing them. I didn't know what to answer. So I, I gave him some random answer. A holy and edifying and a good shepherd and a faithful father and like, I was about to break out into like praise and worship and like sing something. <laughs> so Abuna, God bless him, he goes, mm. <laughs> He goes, I'm sorry Abuna, I must have him like Abuna, Abuna. Can I, can I tell you, can I tell you a name of a priest that I would really like to be like? So he looks at me and he smiles. Habibi, he looks at me with these eyes as if to say, right? So he goes, sure, Abuna, share. And then I name dropped the priest. I name dropped the priest that at the time was like a really big deal. And everybody knew this priest. I'm like, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. So he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, but the church already has one of him. The church doesn't need two of him. Who are you going to be? I promise you, this is a week into my priesthood. So I finally realized that the best possible answer I could give is, Abuna, I don't know. I don't know. And then he smiles from ear to ear. And he goes, that's wonderful. God can work with that. If you have no idea who God is calling you to be, instead of simply trying to look at people and say, let me imitate them. Let me be like them. Let me act as if I was them. That's not going to lead you to anything authentic. What you should be doing is turning to God and say, who are you calling me to be? What is my real identity in you? Very often we live our lives in the church simply acting as if we're holy. Because we've seen examples of holiness. If you're constantly asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you and to the world who it is that you're supposed to be, who God is calling you to be, then you have a much better chance of being able to fulfill your potential in Christ. So learn from my mistake. Don't go out there looking at people and saying, let me just imitate them. The only person you're supposed to walk in his footsteps is Christ our Lord. Nobody else. And it's only in him that your identity will be fully revealed. Yesterday, last night, you talked about having a childlike repentance where we should bounce back easily from our sin and not give them much of power, attention or power over us. However, today, you talked about having a true and vulnerable repentance during confession where you bear the shame of your sins. How do you balance both attitudes? Is that me or when I... <laughs> <laughs> the, um... The shame that we bear in, in, in confession is, is that sense of honesty, right? It's that sense of vulnerability, of not, um, 
you know, people sometimes come in confession and they and they say, you know, oh, oh Buna, you know, I, like everybody else, you know, I said some lies, maybe cheated on my exam, you know, um, maybe I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at, you know, but like, you know, like most people, like nothing, like I didn't kill anybody, right? So there's, there's, there, there's, a, there's a sort of guard that's up, there's a sort of protection of, of not wanting to, to bear the reality of what sin is in one's life, right? And, and, and confession is the place where we have the, the opportunity to, to really be in the presence of the, of, the, of the healing mercy of Christ, right? To hear the words of the absolution, right? Which is this beautiful gift that God gives us in which he says, I don't want you to carry the burden of this sin anymore. I don't want you to walk around with the guilt of this sin anymore. I want you to, 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 to joyfully hear the, the words of, of, of mercy and forgiveness. But in our daily sort of experience of, of living the Christian life and we sin, we fall, the, the idea of getting up quickly is not about the shame, it's about the pride that is usually what keeps us sad, right? Because what happens, like Father Zacharias, I was giving the example that he says that in the monastery, he said, we know who repented properly um, by, by how they are in the morning. Like those who repented properly in the middle of the night are, are joyful in the morning. And those who, who, who didn't repent properly are walking around sad, right? And what he meant by that is that the sadness that we often carry is our wounded pride, which refuses to accept who we are, refuses to see the sin for what it is, and, and to offer it quickly to, to the Lord and receive, to receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God. So when we remain sad and because of our sins, it means we didn't repent properly in the sense that we are sort of holding this image of ourselves that we refuse to accept that we aren't this image. We didn't, we didn't live up to this image, right? Who, like, I don't want to be this person who fell into this sin. I refuse to accept that I am this person who fell into this sin, right? And that's what keeps me sad and, 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 and unable to receive the joy of, of, of forgiveness. So the shame is, is not, is not, so the, one is, one is the, dealing with the shame of the reality of sin. The other one is, is dealing with pride versus humility. How do we figure out our spiritual gifts and individual ways we can be vessels for God? <laughs> Once Abuna was walking in the desert. <laughs> you don't have a desert story with this one? <laughs> he didn't say anything to me. <laughs> I very quickly realized in the beginning of my priesthood that um, the gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit are meant to be able to edify the entire church. They're not meant so that you can flex a muscle and show it off to people. Oftentimes when, Saint, when, this, when the fathers are interpreting the passages of St. Paul and the Pauline epistles when he's speaking about gifts, they're specifically highlighting how it is that God is capable of giving a gift to someone based on the needs of the people that surround them. When you take a look at some of the gifts that are given in the church, for instance, yesterday we were talking with some of uh, with some of the college group members. We were talking about specifically the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to cast out demons. We were talking about exorcists. And so we were talking about how it is. This is not something that is given to everyone. We, we were actually told during our 40 days, Habib, it's not because khalas, you've been a priest, that means that you run to a person who who's, has a demon and you think to yourself, I'm going to cast it out. On the contrary, you see that stuff and you bolt, you run in the other direction. Don't assume that you have the gift. And this is not something that simply is given to everyone. It can be given to a lay person, it can be given to a holy man or a holy woman. It's not necessarily only reserved for clergy. But we know that in every city or in every state or in every region where there is a need, God is going to give that gift. You have to sincerely pray and ask the Holy Spirit and ask Him, tell me, tell me what have you given me so that everyone around me can benefit. There is an Eastern saint by the name of Saint Seraphim of Seraph who talks about how it is that if we acquire the Holy Spirit, then thousands of souls around us will be saved. Thousands. If we just take the time to be able to ask the Holy Spirit who already indwells you, stop looking for Him outside of you. 
You already bear the Holy Spirit. God is already indwelling you. If I turn to Him and I tell Him, reveal to me what gift you want me to be able to use for not only my salvation, but for the edification of many. And if you're having these conversations and you still don't know what gift you have, then again, you're going to hear me repeat this and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but if you are not discipled by a spiritual guide or a father of confession, then you're trying to navigate the spiritual life on your own. And you can't be your own coach. You can't be your own mentor. It is impossible. There is something so beautiful about our Orthodox Church in the fact that from the youngest six-year-old child all the way to His Holiness the Patriarch, every single one of us is called to have an Abba. Someone that we can call a person to whom we are discipled. Someone who can coach me and help me and pray for me. So if I can't recognize my gift, when I turn to my spiritual guide and I say, pray with me and tell me what you see. Because sometimes God, for the sake of humility and for the sake of your salvation, will blind you from seeing your own gift. Especially if you're a person like me and you struggle with the passion of pride, God will oftentimes close your eyes so that you don't go walking around using your gift for your own benefits rather than for the benefits of the church. So if you are asking the Holy Spirit, and you're also turning to your spiritual guide, and you're asking in absolute sincerity, Lord, tell me how you want me to use the gift that you've given me. Identify to me this gift, not only for my salvation, but for the sake of others, then surely he's going to respond. Surely he's going to respond. How can I control my pride when doing a service or receiving praise from people? I noticed God was given it to me, but I still cannot help but feel pride. Mm. There's a story, I think, oh, it's like it's from sporting. Yeah, I heard a story once about Abu Nabshoi Kamen, the, the saint Abu Nabshoi Kamen. Uh, that once he gave like a, a very fiery like talk to the youth and then after the, uh, the talk one of the youth came to him and said Abuna the talk was amazing and he said yes I know the devil just whispered that into my ear <laughs> um, so of course there's a difference the reason why that story is good of course he's a saint and it shows that, that we can't avoid being tempted right it's what we do with the temptation right so um, we're not going to arrive at a point where we're never tempted to pride, we're never tempted to anger, we're never tempted to lust, right? We're gonna, but what we, do, what we need to do is, is to recognize the temptation early in the stage, right? There are, the saints will often talk about different stages of temptation, right? The suggestion, the sort of entertaining the thought, accepting the thought, right? acting on the thought, so on. Um, and so what we do, what we do in, in, in when we recognize the temptation is what's important, right? And, and that's where we can, we try to humble ourselves by remembering our weakness. We remember our, our sinful, you know, um, tendencies that we, you know, we fall into. We try to humble ourselves. So, uh, Father Zacharias always talks about, you know, always find a humble thought. Anything that humbles you. Before you do anything. Before you give a sermon. Before you, you, you dress as a deacon. Before you, you, you serve at the altar as a priest. Before you go visit somebody. Do some, say something to humble yourself before God, right? So you have to first prepare to go into any service by first humbling yourself. Don't wait until after you begin your service to try to find a humble thought. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that is important is like, I think we were talking in one of the fireside chats um, the other day about thinking of grace as like a garment that God sort of covers you with and warms you with, right? And, and this garment is, you know, the grace that he gives you to the gifts that Abuna was talking about the, um, the, the, in our service and so on. And always remember that if he takes that garment off of you, what's left? You, you're totally naked, right? You're, you, you have nothing. And so always remember that everything, I mean, the saints will, will have a very simple for, formula. Everything bad is mine. Everything good comes from God. Everything that's evil and bad, I'm responsible for. I take accountability for. This is truly what, is, what belongs to me. And everything good, everything, Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, nothing. is a gift from God. Right? And he, if he removes that gift, which he can, if he removes that grace, which he can, if he exposes us, which he can, right, then we return to just our nothingness. Right? Another thing that, that I try to do is that anytime somebody comes to me and says, 
Abuna, that was amazing, or Abuna, that was great, or whatever, or just praises me for something, I immediately, in my mind, I humble myself before God. I say, no, Lord, you know the wretch that I am. But reward this person for the, for the purity of their heart, that they see the good in me. I thank you, Lord, that you covered me. I thank you, Lord, that you, that you gave me favor in their eyes, though you know how miserable I am on the inside. So say a prayer like that in your own words, whatever is, is more natural to you, and, and, and struggle to never let the thought of pride take root in you, in your service. So go in with a humble thought and, and repeat. <laughs> How does one deal with the pain of losing people in their lives due to sins we committed? Can God bring them back if we change? So we know that a lot of our sins have natural consequences. And we know that sometimes because of the sins that we commit, that sometimes it could jeopardize relationships. And while people, especially those who are Christian, are compelled by the gospel to forgive, it doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship has to go back to what it once was. In the same way that God respects our free will, we have to be able to respect the free will of others. That if they want to set a boundary with us, we have no choice but to love them regardless of whether or not that hurts us. Especially if I was a cause of offense to someone. Can God allow for reconciliation? Of course, we even have to pray for it. We pray for that reconciliation. But don't be fooled into thinking that the reconciliation necessarily means that things will go back to exactly where you left off. In some specific cases, God not only allows it to go back to where it once was, but it can even become something that is greater and deeper. But those cases are not always guaranteed to us. Because depending on what the offense was, and depending on how bad I have hurt the person, then sometimes that person also in their own brokenness in their humanity, feels like it's important for them to keep a certain distance from me. This is especially true for clergy. Because when clergy mess up, and I'll speak here specifically of myself, the expectation is that Abuna Anthony is supposed to be a father. He's expected to be a perfect icon of Christ. And while the expectations are much greater than anything that my brokenness can handle, when I don't live up to them, people are greatly hurt by me. And so sometimes, even as a clergy member, when I really don't mean to, if I'm the cause of an offense to someone, that person is deeply wounded. Deeply wounded. Think for just a moment, who are the people who have caused the church the most amount of trouble? Her own men. <laughs> Arius was a priest of Alexandria. Nestorius was a patriarch of Constantinople. Macedonius, well, he was a phony patriarch, but regardless, he was a patriarch. The church has always suffered at the hands of the people who were supposed to be her ambassadors. So knowing that I can be a tremendous cause of offense to people, knowing that my mistakes hurt much more, it forces me to be able to constantly go to that place where Abuna was just talking about. When he was talking earlier about when you wake up and see the people's faces, was it Father Zacharias who said that? Mm -hmm. Those who repented last night and who didn't? If I'm not constantly repenting every night, then I know that I'm going out into the world potentially capable of being a great offense, especially because I'm expected to be an ambassador to him. And you, in your own right, you are also called to be icons of Christ. And so when we hurt people, we almost have to empathize with them when they're incapable of meeting us where we are or it takes time for them to be reconciled back to us. But I urge you, Believe in the power of prayer. Believe in the power of the altar. I was so happy today when, you know, the, the, the idea of writing down prayers and placing them on the altar, I sometimes feel like it's fading away in our church. That there's a generation of people who have forgotten the power of the altar. Yes, you pray when you're standing, but once upon a time, the older generation, Abuna would go with the censer around the church, and he'd come back and he's holding pieces of paper because so many people are giving him prayers. Today we're seeing it lesson and lesson. Believe in the power of the altar. If you know that there is someone that you have offended, that you want this person to be able to receive the love of Christ and then be able to extend that forgiveness to you, then pray for that reconciliation. Place it on the altar. 
St. Paul says this in his epistles. He says, we have an altar. This idea of having an altar literally means that as long as there is an altar, we have hope. So place your requests before God with tears and with prayers and with vigils and matanyas. Now that we've started the Advent fast today, begin your matanyas. Begin and request that the Lord may be able to offer a possible reconciliation, that love may exist where once upon a time there was offense. If you pray, and if you place it on the altar, yes, God can definitely hear your prayers. And God can reconcile brother and sister and brother and brother and father and son, and so on and so forth. How can I change loneliness to solitude when I have a lot of intrusive thoughts? So for those, um, maybe just context for, for the rest of the, the, the group that was with Father Anthony, um, we, there was a quote that we were reflecting on from Father Henry Nowen, where he talks about all of us experience something called what he calls aloneness. And for some people, aloneness becomes loneliness, which is a wound. But for other people, that is for the Christians who are in a relationship with God, our aloneness should be converted to solitude, which is where we discover the unique um, relationship of sonship, daughtership that we have with the Lord. Right? So it's in, in solitude that we discover our, our identity as children of God, and this becomes a source of, of, of the joy of our Christian life. Right? So what, what, what is that staple of, of joy that we carry with us? It's not that I you know, succeed in overcoming a certain sin and then I fall back. And, right? if, if that was the case, then we would constantly go from being joyful to being sad. Right? But what, what gives us that constant joy is our identity, which the devil can't take away. Right? This is the whole like, sort of point of the story of the prodigal son, right? that the son is always a son. He can never return to be a hired servant or to, some, or to something foreign to uh, his father's house. Right? So, but the, the question I think is hinting more at, so that's just the context. The question I think is hinting more at if, if for psychological reasons, being spending time in physical solitude creates a problem of um, intrusive thoughts, right? Then then we have to, of course, be um, wise in the balance between spending time alone, like in physical solitude, and trying to fill that time, of course, with, with, with prayer and reading so that we are able to overcome our, our thoughts and, and to battle against those thoughts. And we need time of fellowship, communion, fraternity with, with one another, right? Some people will love uh, a greater measure of physical solitude than others, right? I mean, obviously, many who are called to the monastic life, they, they, they have a sort of a sense where, where they are drawn to a more uh, regular practice of physical solitude, right? Others are more communal, right? Uh, and and there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that because really the, the physical solitude is more of an anomaly than it is the, the norm because we were, we were created as community, right? So that's, that's the norm, right? But I, but I think we can at least begin to practice, even if we're struggling with intrusive thoughts, right? We can begin to practice greater degrees, especially like in periods like the fast, um, especially times like Lent, of just sort of shutting ourselves off a little bit more than, than, than normal, right? Whether it's, you know, at our home or on a retreat or, you know, in a quiet place uh, for a walk, right? Just learning to spend a little bit more time in physical solitude and trying to fill that time with spiritual um, activities of prayer and reading and meditation. And like, the Jesus prayer is one way that's very helpful, right? We can, again, that we talked about that the, basically the fathers tell us there's two ways to deal with thoughts. Either we ignore them or we replace them, right? And so somebody who is struggling with a lot of intrusive thoughts, I would suggest, I'm not a psychologist, but I would suggest that, that um, the second, the latter, would be more effective, right? Try to replace the thoughts with, like saying the Jesus prayer, quotes from the scriptures, from the Psalms, um, you know, um, any prayers that, that the spontaneous prayers, you can, you know, um, take the Jesus prayer and you can have variations of it. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, I trust in you. Lord Jesus Christ, come to my aid. Lord Jesus Christ, I love you. Lord Jesus Christ, be with me. Right? Um, reading can be a, a way where we can concentrate on, 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 on a text right? and try to um, struggle against uh, in, intrusive thoughts. But I think, again, the, the amount of physical solitude is going to depend from person to person. 
share stories or experiences that you've had with saints or holy people, either of you? <laughs> At 142, 143. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I, I don't. I, uh, most of you have heard, of course, of. Um, of my stories of Tansimira. And uh, if you haven't, I think there's a couple of recordings that either you can share with each other or somebody can just text me and I will share a link to a, so a few years ago at the convent, there was a sort of at the very end sort of a Q&A impromptu discussion that led into a whole series of stories that I shared about a woman, her name was Tansimira Doherty. She was uh, a very holy woman that uh, I was privileged to, to, to be close to for a number of years. She reposed uh, seven years ago now. And um, there are a lot of amazing stories about her relationship with Pope Corliss when he was alive as the patriarch in, in the church in Egypt, and her relationship with him when he, after his repose and, and as, a, as an intercessor in heaven. Um, so I won't be able to do justice to uh, introducing her, but that would be the closest I really I can. I mean, there's a couple of people, of course, that I, that I met in my life that I would consider to be saintly people. But in, in a very real sense, I would say someone like Tansimira, um, the, the way I always describe sort of what I, as a bystander, as a participant, uh, as a friend to her, as a, as a spiritual brother, son, father, and, and really all of the above, and she was very much a spiritual mother to me, the way I best describe what I experienced through her was that the veil between heaven and earth was lifted for, for a period of time, and I was able to sort of just be a witness to to the beauty of seeing really heaven descend in many ways and her eyes were open to many things in the divine liturgy um, to, to the angelic world to the saints who were present with us um, to to the beautiful fragrances of the saints that sometimes visit us uh, there was a lot a lot of stories that um, that I shared over the years and they're all I think uh, in, in different forms online so I'll sort of you know leave you to find it or you can text me and I can direct you to it that would be the closest I came to somebody who really was a very saintly, holy person. But I will just say, uh, until I, um, so that I can leave and give the rest of the time to Abuna, is that the source of her holiness, of course, was not those gifts. The source of her holiness was a life of prayer and worship and love for the church. She was a very ecclesiastical per person. Um, she loved the Psalms. She loved fasting. She loved liturgy. Um, she was a, a tremendous support to many people in the community through her prayers, through her love and encouragement. Um, she was a, a very virtuous person, but she also had her faults. She was a very normal person. And I was joking yesterday saying she loved Chinese food. You know, she had her little quirks. She sometimes judged people and regretted it. She sometimes was harsh with people. Um, she had faults, and yet at the same time we saw how God was lavishing on her tremendous spiritual gifts and talents. And so it was probably the most encouraging relationship I've ever had, um, having not lived you know, in Egypt to, and being close to the monasteries and things like that as a, you know, as a youth, um, of somebody who, for me, was a living saint. And uh, I will never, uh, I will never uh, forget, of course, those moments. And I will never, hopefully, um, lose the, the deep gratitude I have to, to my Lord for allowing a poor person like me to just be a witness not a participant, but just a witness. So I love you all. I'm sorry I have to run. Please stay and enjoy Abuna Anthony and um, pray for me for my travels. And God willing, you know, after some time when you're, you know, you're not sick of me, you know, I'll we'll come back and see you again. Okay. Uh, how can we have hopes and aspirations for the future and also submit the will of God and trust Him? Oh, yes, I would. The holiest person I know is Abuna Kurdus Ibrahim because he once knew Don to Samira. <laughs> you actually want me to answer? Yeah. <laughs> my, my relationship with holy people is a little bit unique in the sense where I spent the first couple of years of my priesthood being super skeptical of everything that is supernatural. You guys are going to pick up on the theme very quickly. That I, like you're going to very quickly realize that it's normal to ask the question, well, how did this guy get ordained? <laughs> <laughs> the first couple of years of my priesthood, I was very focused on hyper-rational faith, where I wanted everything to make sense. 
And I wanted to believe that you can simply put two and two together and figure out that the church cap was capable of explaining every question that you had rationally and reasonably. You didn't have to depend on supernatural and miraculous events for you to believe in anything. And so every time everybody brought up this whole idea of the supernatural and the miraculous and this and that, it would trigger me. I would just be like, that's really nice, but like, not everything is a miracle. Because I grew up, my mom was the kind of person who, she's super simple. She's super loving. Like if I dropped my keys and they got stuck somewhere in the couch, when we'd find them in the couch, she's like, Mokeza. I'm like, it's not. <laughs> I, was that, I was that kid who, if I had to take public transportation, like the bus to be able to get to university, if I missed my bus and I came back home, she's like, Habibi, it's okay. The bus will probably explode. <laughs> and Jesus saved you. Um, everything has some sort of supernatural explanation. So it turned me off. It turned me off. And then a few years into my priesthood, God in His mercy introduced me to a couple of people who really like, they wiped the floor with me. They wiped the floor with me. The experiences that I was exposed to, the people that I was exposed to, the events that I had a chance to be able to witness firsthand. Um, Abuna was very, in passing, Kida talking about the fragrances that will fill the room when a saint is among us. I didn't experience that stuff. I didn't know the stuff existed. And then you're in a room with a holy person who speaks to the saints, and next thing you know, the room explodes with the smell of incense, and you have no idea where it's coming from. So you're freaking out. I walk into a room, and there's literally a cross that's on the wall, and it's dripping oil, and my mind is looking at this cross that is dripping oil. And my brain is telling me, so that's happening. But that's impossible. So my, 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 my brain is not processing what's going on. The first time I encountered anything that had to do with God's authority over anything that was demonic, that, this stuff blew my mind. And then you realize there are people who, they're so much closer to the kingdom than me. Because they really do believe in the power of God. And so because they believe in the power of God, they also believe that the saints surround us. And so if the saints are surrounding us, then why not have a relationship with them? So God put a few people around me. One person speaks to Baba Krullus, another person speaks to St. Mary, another person to St. George. And I'm just like, uh. <laughs> And then you realize I spent way too much of my time hearing these things, classifying it in the back of my mind and never ever recognizing the power of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not somewhere that is hidden away from us. Father Stephen Freeman from the Eastern Church, he talks about a two-story universe. This concept of how it is that we really do live our lives as if somehow we live on the first floor of the universe and God and the saints live on the second story. We live as if there is separation between us. That if you live your life properly, eventually they'll move you up from the first floor to the second floor. And if you don't live your life properly, apparently we believe that you get sent to the basement. We live our life as if there's a separation between the supernatural and what we consider to be natural. But there are so many Christians out there who realize there is no such thing as a second story. Everything that exists, everything that is real, lives together. There is no separation between us and the kingdom. There is no separation or barrier between us and the saints. The kingdom of God is accessible to us right here and now. That's why Christ says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning what? You can reach out and grab it. It's right there. It's not something that you look forward to. It's something that you begin to practice and to live today. Unfortunately, I only picked up on all of this stuff and how real it was after the priesthood. So I think the only word of encouragement I would tell you is don't worry so much about being the person who talks to the saints. Don't worry so much about being the person who has the gift and people will be able to come to and flock around and speak to and want to like, get their stories and take their blessings. Be the person who actually believes in this. Be the person who knows that the kingdom of heaven is accessible to you. Be the person who knows that you can ask Saint Mary and tell her, Mama, walk with me. That you can turn to the saints and tell them, I want to know you. I want to befriend you. If you start now, who knows where you'll be? five, six, seven years from now. 
who knows when it will be five or six weeks from now, especially if you do it from the heart. But the kingdom of heaven definitely is much more accessible to us than we believe. So I know I didn't answer the question, but that's all I'll give you for now. How can we have hopes or aspirations for the future and also submit the will of God and trust Him? So St. Augustine says something really beautiful. He says you have to live your life and act as if everything depended on you, but you have to pray as if everything depended on God. So let me repeat that again. You must act as if everything depended on you, but you must pray as if everything depended on God. So what does this look like? God tells you and me, I want to participate in your life. I'm not interested in taking control of your life. We oftentimes speak of God's will as if we have to guess what God wants. The way that we receive questions about God's will sometimes gives me the impression that many people are out there thinking to themselves, God has a plan for me and I have to read his mind. I have to figure out what he wants because if I mess up, then this is going to translate into me upsetting God. And you'll notice that people especially believe this when it comes to them believing in like the concept of the one. Where there's one person out there for every person. Have you ever given any serious thought to this concept? The one? You realize how nonsensical this is, right? So let's go back to me and George for a second, okay? Let's say I am not a godly person. I'm not interested in what God wants for me. So I marry Stephanie. But Stephanie was supposedly the one for George. So I just messed up George's one. And now because I married Stephanie, which was supposed to be the one for George, George is forced to marry Tiffany. But Tiffany wasn't his one. She was Samas one. Now imagine how maybe what this looks like. We're, we're, we're literally living our lives as if God is in heaven looking at me and saying, You ruined everything. God is not interested in writing out the blueprint of our lives and then telling you, Yalla, good luck. Guess better what I want. As if we're expected to read his mind. God is not interested in telling you, get out of the driver's seat, sit in the back, let me take over. So this whole, like, Jesus take the wheel stuff, that's not actually what our faith is based on. The Lord is much more interested in sitting next to you in the passenger seat and you telling him, come and ride with me. Participate with me in my life. I want you to bless. I don't want to do this without you. So the Holy Spirit serves so much more as a GPS than it does as the chauffeur. How does it work with the GPS? You put in the destination. You enter the destination, you say, Lord, take me to heaven. Most importantly, that's what I want. That's where I want to go. So what does the GPS do? It offers you a route. And it tells you. Turn here, turn there, in a few kilometers, you guys don't do kilometers. In miles, you do this, you do that, right? But what happens if I decide, I'm not, I'm not turning. I'm not turning. Thanks for the offer, I'm not turning, I'm going to go straight. What does the GPS do? Does it shut down and say, ah, oh, you're stupid, I'm not doing this, and it leaves you alone? What does the GPS do? It reroutes, it says, no problem. As long as you still want to get to the same destination, I'll get you there. We might be delayed. I might force you to do a U-turn. You might end up in some traffic. We might have to wait a little bit. But I'll get you there. But it reroutes you. And you can ignore the GPS as much as you want. By all means, have ambitions. By all means, have hopes for the future. But involve the Holy Spirit. Sit with me. Sit next to me. Make sure that as I choose this, that it still leads me to salvation. Because forgive me for saying this, and I hate to burst your bubble. Whether you become a pharmacist, a doctor, a teacher, a historian, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home father, you think God is in heaven basically saying like, ah, I really wanted him to be an engineer. <laughs> so let me let you in on a secret. The kingdom of heaven doesn't need any professions. There's no need for doctors in the kingdom. Nobody gets sick. There's no need for engineers. Nothing breaks down. There's no need for pharmacists. Nobody sells drugs in heaven. <laughs> in the kingdom of heaven, the only title and the only thing that matters is who you are, not what you do. So by all means, have ambitions. But involve God and He'll say, excellent, I'll bless. 
I'll bless, I'll allow your life to be a source of blessing to people as a teacher, as a pharmacist, as a physician, as a mother, as a father, as, as whatever you want to be. But just involve them. Don't worry about your ambitions getting in the way. They won't get in the way if you don't lose sight of who you are. Because what you do doesn't define you. Uh, well, just so you know, it's uh, almost 2 o'clock. Do you want to take one more question? Or? What time is it now? What do you do? We can do one more, yeah. How can I deal with someone who constantly reminds me of my past? Would you like to change the question? <laughs> no, no, I'm just... Why does it... Why does it... لا مش منك حبيبي من جورج انت جميلة حبيبي جورج معفن Joy is reprimanding me. He's like, Joy, you're beautiful. I'm a fake. خلاص بشوي. عاك عليا بشوي. أنا وحش. This whole idea of somebody reminding you of your past. If it's really unbearable, then that's that's fine. You're you're perfectly in your right to create a boundary. But I just want to. I'm trying to figure out what's the problem with someone reminding you of your past. There's a very big difference between you remembering your past and someone inviting you to go back to your past. There's a huge difference. Because if you constantly just avoid people who are going to remind you of your past, I can't begin to imagine how many people you might end up avoiding. Because sometimes you're going to be obliged not only to deal with those people, what if those people are family? What if the person who reminds you of your past is your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children? What are you going to do? You're going to run away from it? No. The biggest problem in all of this is I think sometimes we give way too much power to the accumulation of, and we, we spoke about this with the college group, you are not the sum of your past sins. You are not the sum of your successes. You are not what you do. You are not what you think. Your identity transcends all of those things. And so if you sit there and you're completely overtaken by the concern of your past, and the person that you know or see reminds you of that past, if you keep running away from it, then you're not running towards anything. The human being was meant to move towards God, not to run away from anything. So I'm not entirely sure what's implied in the question. And so because I can't necessarily read into it, I would suggest the following. If it's truly unbearable, and the person that you're dealing with, it's constantly triggering memories that are paralyzing you, that are causing you to feel feelings of hopelessness, of despair, create a boundary with that person. But if, if that person is unavoidable, then go ahead and just face the fact that you embrace the freedom that God has given you in your forgiveness. If He's forgiven you, if He's poured His mercy and His love out on you, then accept the fact that you are beloved. Accept the fact that you're His bride. Live in the freedom of that forgiveness. Don't worry about your past. Can you imagine? Can you, uh, we were talking about this just yesterday. Can you imagine if St. Paul, after the Lord appeared to him, the apostles refused to forget his past? Can you imagine if the apostles got together and said, we're really happy Jesus appeared to you on Damascus? That's really great that you're now a Christian. But you're the dude who killed Stephen, and we're not going to deal with you. So you need to work on your own. Can you imagine if Paul, every time he saw the apostles, he burst out into tears and he says, every time I see you, I remember what I did to Stephen, I remember how horrible I was. Can you imagine if the Samaritan woman, every time she spoke the name of Jesus, she was reminded of the conviction of her past and how he loved her, and how he still took her away from that, and so she's reminded... There has to be a moment where we choose to live in the freedom and the liberty that is given to us in our belovedness. Your identity is that you are His. 
And if you are His, then you're not defined by your past. You're not. Look at the people that the church celebrates. We put St. Moses the strong on a pedestal. Why? Because of his past. Because he overcame it. Because he was freed from it. St. Mary of Egypt. Why do we put her up on a pedestal? And we venerate this woman who lived a life that was absolutely deplorable. Because she overcame her past. Because she chose to embrace the freedom that she received in being loved by God. So be like them. Be like them and don't let anything remind you of a past where you feel like you have to live in shame or in guilt. If you have been forgiven, then you are completely renewed. And Christ promises that. I make all things new. In Psalm 50, when you say, create in me a clean heart, believe he's done it. Live in that freedom. And let that guide you and move you forward. Don't run away from anything. On the contrary, move towards something that's worth it. Thank you.